It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. Today, my guest is Peter Greer, president and CEO of Hope International. Hope International is a global, Christ-centered economic development organization serving throughout Africa, Asia, Latin America, and Eastern Europe. Prior to joining Hope, Peter worked internationally as a microfinance advisor in Cambodia and Zimbabwe and as managing director for Uwego Bank in Rwanda. Peter received his Bachelor of Science degree in international business from Messiah University and his Master's in political and economic development from Harvard's Kennedy School. Peter's favorite part of his job is spending time with the entrepreneurs Hope serves, whether harvesting coffee with farmers in Rwanda, dancing alongside savings groups in Haiti, or visiting the greenhouses of entrepreneurs in the Ukraine. Peter has co-authored over 10 books, including Mission Drift, Rooting for Rivals, The Spiritual Danger of Doing Good and Created to Flourish. He is husband to Laurel and dad to Keith, Liliana, Miles, and London, and while his sports loyalties remain in New England, Peter and his family live in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Peter Greer, welcome into the corner office. Thanks so much for having me. I'm looking forward to this. Uh, great having you here. And we spoke a little bit ago, and I'm sure a lot's happened since then in a fast-changing world of, of Hope International. And I want to get to that in a minute. But we always like to kind of start in the early days. And tell us a little bit about your early years. Where did you grow up and what your early family life was like? Yeah, so I grew up in Massachusetts, and that shaped me in many ways, including my sports loyalties. So I am <laughs> born and raised a New Englander, but um, really got interested in this concept of economic development when I was in college, and I was studying in Moscow mm. and had lunch with an individual who asked me if I'd ever heard of the Grameen Bank and microfinance, and that conversation literally changed the direction of my life. I just became fascinated with this idea of using business in communities of poverty as a way to not just make a short-term impact, but to really invest in entrepreneurs around the world and see what happens uh, with that. So that's really the turning point in my life uh, in terms of my career. Well, I want to talk a little bit more about that, but we want to we want to build up to that a bit. We want to keep our listeners on here for a while because that area of microfinance is just so fascinating. It's really been a 21st century phenomena too. I know that in the late 90s, I think there was a, was that a bank and was it in um, 
in the Middle East, Bangladesh. I remember there was a gentleman that kind of got it going with a lot of, you know, uh, uh, women, f- financing women in business and so forth. And it's just exploded. And it's just done so many good things in various parts of the world. But 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 back to you, uh, mom and dad, uh, any children? You know, were they in the financing world? Or tell us a little bit about their background and, and what they did. Yeah, so I came at this from a, from a very different perspective. Mm. So my parents were involved in in ministry. So my dad right. was a pastor, and my mom was incredibly active, uh, serving and leading as well. And uh, one of the gifts that they gave us kids was it wasn't about Christmas time having all kinds of things under mm. the tree. We certainly did have that, but much bigger gift that they gave us was the opportunity to go and see. So they'd bring us on trips every summer. Mm. We'd spend time in the Bronx, uh, New York, and uh, then we would go internationally. So they really gave us an understanding of, of the world um, and uh, awesome. getting out of our little kind of bubble and, <laughs> and expanding beyond that. And that was an incredible gift that they gave us. Were they kind of mission trips? Were you going in, you know, helping other people or was it just more kind of observing, getting to know people in those various communities? Almost always it was going and, and serving alongside individuals, so yeah. different forms of mission trips, and oh, it just was, was fantastic to, as a young kid to, to realize the world is big. Um, and and uh, for me, it just I love trying to learn other languages. I love connecting with other people across cultural boundaries, and, and it just was a fantastic, fantastic gift that, that my parents gave me. I love it. So obviously grew up in a Christian home. When, when did you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior? Yeah, so again, the gift of having parents that were, this was their job, but this was their life. And there yeah. was never any sense of of a different uh, mom or dad on yeah. Sunday morning than mom and dad on mm. Monday morning. They were the same people and really lived out their faith in a beautiful and authentic way. And um, so in high school is when that uh, changed for me, that that became not just my parents' deal, but it became the center of my life as well. And, oh, just been an incredible journey uh, ever since. So, yeah, really a lifelong adventure of of trying to figure out how to— how do we love God? How do we love our neighbors? And then what does it look like to invest in, in families around the world living in places of extreme poverty? Awesome. What were some of the early lessons and things that you remember that mom and dad, you know, taught you as you made these trips with your family to various different places in the, in, in the country and the world? You know, there are some specific times that I just remember when we would be there. Um, first person, uh, if there was something that a trash can that fell over. Mm. Uh, it would be my parents that would be there, um, you know, helping to clean it up. There never was anything of hierarchy or Very position. Very service-oriented. Oh, it just was, yeah, they, they, they follow in the example of one who washed feet, and I yeah. think there's a lot of cultural relevance uh, to that today. What are those jobs that no one else seems to want to do? And those always were the jobs that they mm. seemed willing to do, not just willing, but joyfully willing to do. Um, so, yeah, washing feet, the, the cultural equivalent of washing <laughs> feet is where I would find them. So I think that was one of the significant pieces. And then the other it. thing, if remember my parents saying it on so many occasions, but if a job is worth doing, it's worth doing well. And mm. so this ethic of hard work and uh, really pouring yourself into something, um, yeah, mediocrity or just trying to do the minimum to get by, that was not the way of our family. <laughs> that um, never flew. Yeah. yeah. No. What about school? Were you a good student? 
I I enjoyed school. I probably enjoyed sports more than school. Uh-huh, uh, right. But yeah, I certainly certainly uh, found myself. Yeah, there are certain classes in particular that uh, <laughs> things that, that you I really probably gravitated fancy, right. to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah more no, definitely though. definitely enjoyed that. But uh, opportunity to yeah study things that I cared about, and um, I think that is the bigger bigger piece of having the privilege of an educational setting that felt connected to the sure. to the path that I was on, and that awesome. uh, that's a motivator. That's that's an incentive to really pour yourself into it. What were your favorite sports? Uh, so through college, I played soccer and lacrosse. Ah, so those right. were my two. Cool. But right now, with my four kids, there is nothing on a fall day that I like more than being <laughs> out there on the soccer field cheering on my girls. I so it. it's been it's been so much fun. So you went to Messiah University, got your uh, BS in international business. Uh, did you play sports there, or was it more, um, you know, kind of club club ball, so to speak? Yeah, no, I got to play uh, varsity soccer and varsity lacrosse uh, awesome. while I was there. That was a huge part of my education, and, and uh, Messiah College has quite a soccer program, um, so I got to play with some incredible teammates as well as some just terrific coaches uh, as well. So, yep, that definitely shaped my shaped my life and uh, certainly created some lifelong friendships with my teammates as well. I love it. Was, was, the, or was there a scholarship involved or how did you kind of make the decision on Messiah for your uh, undergraduate years? So it was an athletic uh, scholarship, uh, not that I would have uh, received one anyway, but it's <laughs> D3, so it's not possible to right. do that. But I did want to go to a place that I could play uh, two sports, and um, I'd never been in a Christian school context and mm. really wanted to, to try that out, um, and it was just a terrific decision. So, yeah, that's part of the reason why I chose Messiah. And international business that kind of mom and dad's, uh, you know, taking you internationally kind of, you know, inspire that? Or was there something specific that you were looking to to do? Or does it go back to that meeting uh, about microfinance? Yeah, so that was actually in college. That was so, in college, Brent, yeah. I didn't, I didn't wait for your questions. I kind of jumped straight to college <laughs> on there. So, <laughs> but yeah, no, that was definitely that was while I was in college that I had that experience studying internationally. But really, the desire to get involved internationally that yeah. started early. That started on those early mission trips, those early experiences. Um, probably when I was in fifth grade, we ended up spending time in Israel, and oh, then we spent yes. time in in, uh, in Hungary, and and um, and then in Peru, um, in Ecuador. So just a number of different places that we got to travel as kids, and it certainly did shape, yeah, shape shape the course of my life. What was that first job that you took coming outside of, uh, after your undergraduate year? So I had this desire to get involved in microenterprise development and missions. And so I sent my resume out to every organization that I could find that was doing this work. Right. And the only thing I heard back was a postcard that said, we'll keep your resume on file uh, <laughs> should anything come up in the future. So. It oh was not the um, response that I was hoping for. Um, yeah. So I moved back to Massachusetts to my parents' basement, and not exactly the dream, <laughs> but I just love, <laughs> you know, time is not wasted. Um, right. And it, looking back, it just, I, I needed some more experience. Um, yeah. And so I ended up getting a job at a private high school, and it was in the business office, and I got to coach a bunch of sports. and turned out just to be an incredibly special time at Lexington Christian Academy, but I kept this interest in Mm. international business and economic development and ended up 
hearing the president of World Relief give a talk in Boston. Mm, yeah. Came up afterwards, and I will never forget it. I uh, said something like, I sent you my resume two years ago, <laughs> and I still would love to be involved at some point. <laughs> and he was so gracious. Uh, a few weeks after that, ended up flying to Chicago, ended up having an interview, and ended up signing a job uh, offer without knowing where in the world I was going because it didn't matter at all. I uh, checked all the boxes. Are you willing yeah. to work in a war zone? Are you willing to work without running water? It just was <laughs> yes, 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 whatever it <laughs> takes to get involved anywhere. <laughs> Do you need to be paid? No. Um, so I just, it truly was anything to get involved. So I did end up then moving to Cambodia to wow. a rural branch office um, and uh, just. Yeah, an incredible experience for the first time to have this theory, to have something that I studied, but then to actually see it, to taste it, to experience it. Uh, that was an incredibly special time. Tell us a little bit about your work there. So were you working with uh, small business owners? Were you working with larger corporations? What, what was the work uh, in Cambodia? Yeah, so it's really been my career to try and find those that the world would say are not worthy of investment. To find those that, um, whether it is because of the part of the world or because of the current economic situation or maybe because the lack of formal education, whatever it is, there's a lot of people around the world that uh, that, that the formal sector would say those people are not worthy hmm. of, of investment. And I just don't think that's true. And I also yeah. don't think it is... It is the faith uh, that I hold to, uh, believing that everyone is created in the image of God with gifts, with abilities, with dignity. And uh, many times they just haven't had the opportunity to have someone to invest in them or to right. say, I believe that you have what it takes. You, you, you don't need to be a recipient of charity. You have what it takes to start, to expand, to grow, to be the provider. Um, and so really, that's what it was in Cambodia. It was in rural areas. Um, initially, my job was in internal controls and fraud prevention to make sure that some mm. recommendations that were done from an audit department were actually being implemented. But much more fun than that was to go and hear the stories of families, to enter into their homes, to sit on their floors, to hear their stories, the incredible challenges that they had, and the incredible way that they were working so hard to provide for their family. And it was transformative mm. to actually see the hardworking entrepreneurs, and even more than that, to see an outward-focused church that was going and truly loving God and, and loving their neighbors. So I got to work alongside an incredible Cambodian team. Um, and, uh, yeah, just to sit in homes, to hear stories, and just to be so inspired that what I had studied was actually was actually real. Yeah. Now, did uh, World Relief actually provide financial support? Was it just advisory support? Combination of both? Yeah. No, that is the kind of microfinance model that it is not just access to training, but it actually right. is an investment. So it is, um, yeah, small loans uh, initially between fifty and two hundred dollars at the time was the average loan size. So small loans, micro loans. Uh, invested to individuals that didn't have a physical collateral, right. they didn't have the assets, but they certainly had the work ethic and they had a yeah. social collateral. They had strong relationships, um, essentially, that they would walk through training together as a, as a group and then receive individual investments, but to essentially say to each other, if one of you doesn't repay, we will repay for you. Wow. So strong wow. community. 
and it also allowed a structure of really strong, not just repayment rates, but uh, really, really low default rates as, uh, again, the, the model, uh, it worked, that individuals really could be invested in. As an advisor, then, you would also evaluate these opportunities too, right? Or, or was it, or they pre-screened before you would actually meet them? So the, the great part of the model is if I were to look at a couple different businesses in Cambodia, I would have a really hard time knowing which one is yeah. the right model yeah. for that right. context. Right. Uh, I remember the foods in Cambodia being very different. And if I were the judge <laughs> of which restaurateur would be the right one to receive an investment, I would make some bad decisions. Um, <laughs> so the way the model works is it actually is the community itself that has to oh. approve uh, that the individual has the right character, they have the right mm. competency, uh, they have the right work ethic. And so they are the ones that make that screening decision. So Peter, what a wonderful time you had there in Cambodia. And after that, I think you went up to Rwanda. So tell us a little bit about how that was connection. Was that with World Relief or was that with another organization? That was also with... World relief. So there was a need yeah. for a. Uh, initially, I was just going to go to uh, be an advisor, um, but uh, there was a sudden transition of leadership. So at age 24, I mm. got to step in as executive director. And, wow. <laughs> uh, it was an incredible time, Brand. It really was. So this was uh, 1999. So it was five years after the horrific Rwandan genocide. Yes. Oh, and gosh, yeah. uh, the opportunity to go and to watch truly a nation go through a, a healing process and also a rebuilding process. And to, right. to be there at that particular time, it was an incredible, incredible privilege. Um, yeah. And, 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 and was it the same sort of job in that sense where you were doing microfinance uh, evaluation and making small loans, or was it a different uh, mandate? Yes, it was the different job, but same mandate, meaning that the, okay. the, the mission of the organization was very similar, of investing in entrepreneurs through this microfinance methodology. Uh, the difference right. uh, was in role, um, where I was uh, given the kind of mandate to take this project and create a separate entity institution. and hire staff and grow it and secure funding and and so uh -huh. really uh, given the opportunity to to lead in in a cross-cultural setting alongside an incredible group of of colleagues uh in rwanda as well so yeah that was that was it that was uh now in both both locations and i know you went to zimbabwe as well but i don't know if we'll have time to talk about that as well but in cambodia and in rwanda you obviously worked with locals for the most part i mean folks that reported to you and, and what were some of the challenges you had in in those situations uh, with regards to you know managing local folks where you know again um, I'm sure you studied up and got some good cultural affinity but things are done very differently in Africa and Asia and uh, you know what were some of the challenges you faced there yeah you know the the word that comes to mind uh, is just privilege I, it it truly brand it was it was a privilege to work alongside a a group of global colleagues and if anything i mean i knew how much i didn't know i came in under no illusion that i understood <laughs> the cultural context i came in understanding i i don't know what management looks like but I do know uh, that I really wanted to learn and I really wanted to listen and I really grew to love my colleagues um, in mm. that. And I think that cuts across 
cultures. I, I think that as a management technique of listen first, speak second, I think yeah. that has applicability regardless of how different things feel. And maybe that actually was the greatest gift, was realizing that because it felt so different, I had to listen. I knew I didn't know. Um, and, and yet maybe in our context here as well, maybe that same approach of a little more listening, a little slower speaking uh, might help all of us to continue to be effective managers uh, and leaders, even so if it doesn't feel like quite so such a stark uh, difference in, in cultural context. Yeah. Yeah, so true. So you eventually came back uh, to Harvard, right, and got your master's degree. What what was kind of the motivation um, in you know coming back and, and studying? It was political and economic development, I think, right? Was that the, the Kennedy School? Is that where you received your master's? That's correct, and and really an amazing yeah. set of circumstances where. There was a recruiter from Harvard that just happened to be in Rwanda, which I don't think happens very often, but he just happened to be in Rwanda. We happened to have coffee, and he happened to be recruiting for a program uh, that was uh, relatively new at the Kennedy School and essentially offered me a spot (laughs) without ever seeing my resume, which I still don't fully understand, but I'm enormously grateful for. So the thought was to take a couple years, look at the broader field, um, and to try and make sure that I'm continuing to learn and grow. And really, life is is short. I wanted to take a step back, look at the broader field of economic development, look at the space that I was in of of really investment, uh, financial Um, inclusion um, and look at other areas and see what really kind of makes a significant impact and and what aligns with the gifts and abilities that I have and it was an incredible two years but it really did reinforce my excitement my desire to really spend my life uh, focused on trying to share the hope of Jesus and trying to help people have a job so that that really just reinforced kind of the, the, the path that I was on and gave me some new friendships and some new skills uh, to help me on that. Fantastic. And, and obviously, mentioning Hope, it was actually following that that you joined Hope International. Now, now did you come in as the, the president and CEO there? Did you climb up the ladder? Tell us a little bit about, you know, how you started your 17-plus years with them. Yeah, so it actually was a final project um, where we were given a project and I wanted to do something for a smaller organization that was really focused mm. on this space. And so a friend connected me with Hope International and I did a project um, with field research in Kinshasa in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And while I was there, wow. I just happened to overlap with the president of Hope International. We spent a week together. And at the end of that week, there was an Indian restaurant in Kinshasa. And he said, <laughs> I am going to be transitioning. And I'm interested in knowing if you would have any interest in taking my role. And so wow. I did come in as uh, executive director. And um, yeah, right after graduation. And that was 17 years ago. That's fantastic. And so tell us just a little bit of a pause. Tell us about Hope, you know, the mission uh, that Hope is engaged with and kind of the span of responsibilities, you know, in terms of people and and your mission at at Hope International. And I so appreciate this. The focus that the organization has, it is not trying to do everything. It's saying we're going to do a small number of things and we're going to try to do them as best as we possibly can. And so that small number of things that we're trying to do are church-centered savings groups to really Mm. gather individuals together, to equip them, to save together, and then essentially to become a mini credit union where then they invest in each other's business ideas. Really creative way to mobilize capital. 
and also to equip churches to reach out to their communities. Um, and then we also have microfinance institutions, regulated financial, um, well, banks oftentimes that serve those um, that are typically excluded from the formal financial sector. And we do that. Um, it's been a time of wonderful growth, but we do that in 15 countries around the world. Mm. And um, wow. we've served uh, 2.3 million families over our history. And because the loans are repaid, uh, we now have given um, $1.3 billion of investments uh, in the, in the dreams of entrepreneurs and really trying to, wow. again, just this alignment, um, the hope of Jesus, uh, along with the economic tools so that people can work their way out of poverty. That's really, that's yeah. our niche, that's our area of focus, and it has been an absolute gift to work alongside an incredible global team. And again, we're doing this only in those 15 countries. Do you also do it in the United States, or is it only uh, abroad yeah, we, in those locations? We only work internationally. We have a lot of yeah. friendships with organizations that do similar work in the U.S., and there are some great organizations. But for us, we really are focused exclusively internationally. Yeah, awesome. And ha how many people in the organization now, and how many offices around the world? Yeah, so we have about 850 full-time staff. Wow. And... About 100 of them are in the U.S., and then the, the vast majority are in the places where we serve. And then we also have what we call church facilitators. Those are the ones that are on the ground doing the work, doing the trainings. Um, and uh, we have 2,500 of them that serve uh, around the world as well. So, yeah, large team, uh, but I am so thankful right. for, for uh, the opportunity to serve and learn alongside them. And do you operate as a nonprofit or as a for-profit institution? Yeah, we're a nonprofit. So 501c3, nonprofit. Have set up here, yeah. and uh, thankfully we have a great base of support, uh, and they invest in hope. Uh, they donate to hope so that we can invest in entrepreneurs around the world. Right. Awesome. So again, managing a global organization, it's a lot of people, obviously all over the world, lots of different cultures, languages, et cetera. What, what, what's kind of the common thread? You know, how, how do you kind of maintain culture and success through that? Do you visit there a lot? Do you have weekly meetings? Do you have, you know, calls? Is it one-on-one? -on -one? Tell us a little bit about how you, you manage an organization with that scope. I don't think that there's a whole lot unique uh, that we do uh, apart from like a global organization that cares a lot about culture the first thing is you got to define it so what is the culture yeah. that we're trying to create and then you use that not just to be something that is put on a couple inspirational posters on the wall but to actually live hmm. it out that it impacts uh, how we hire it impacts how we interview um, it impacts every time we have a staff meeting we have this software that allows us to very easily kind of get a pulse of where we are in uh, different staff members and part of that is you can nominate one of your colleagues when you see them living out the passion culture and every time we gather together at a staff meeting I love reading some of those stories of people going above <laughs> and beyond and and celebrating them celebrating it I heard once that you know the classic yeah. line from Drucker you get what you measure uh, but a little twist on right. that is you really get what you celebrate and so we want to celebrate the that's culture right. um, when we see people living it out. So I'd say that's that's a key piece. And then, yeah, communication using all different forms. We have global staff meetings that are so much fun. We gather together and uh, for the different offices that are at different time zones, they're recorded and then they're able to watch them later. But a chance to really hear from the from the globe. So it's not just Hope International in 
Pennsylvania, where our headquarters are, it's not just us giving a one-way message, but it's really connecting the different offices, learning together, mm. celebrating together. Huge piece for us is praying together. Uh, the obstacles yeah. in this work are enormous, and uh, it yeah. is regular, not just over the last year and a half with all the lockdowns and all the challenges, but thinking about the disruption or coups or, or different challenges. Um, and we want to be an organization that prays for each other regularly. So yeah, all those things, you put them together. And I do think it's a pretty special place, but maybe just one final thing that connects to the way that we want to interact with the families that we serve, but it also impacts the way that we interact with each other is we want to listen. So there are formal ways mm. that we listen to the global staff with regular habits, regular occurrences. And you know, we do the Best Christian Workplace survey every year, that third-party administered survey. But more than that, there's regular touch points to make sure we're trying to listen well to each other. Our chief operating officer, I love what he does. He has, instead of exit interviews, he has stay interviews. And he regularly <laughs> listens. Retention yeah, exactly. interviews. So why, why, why do you want to listen when someone's leaving only? I, I want to listen before That's they right. make that <laughs> decision and make yeah. sure are there things yeah. that that we can do to make this a great place to work. What do you look for when you're uh, hiring the people that you want to invest in? There's so many of these questions, Brant, that I want to throw right back at you. This is your area of expertise. <laughs> this is what you do. Uh, I keep it real simple uh, for me. And, you know, the other members of the team are looking at the levels of technical proficiency, competency, yeah. and all that. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, I've got three things that I look for. Uh, when I mm. interview, and uh, it's real simple. Um, and my friend Kurt is the one who shared this with me years, years, years ago. But attitude, aptitude, and work yeah. ethic. The three things that you mm. cannot train for. Those three things that without those, uh, it is very unlikely that someone is going to uh, be a high performer at Hope International. And attitude, meaning that full mission fit. Is this just a job or yeah. is there something so much deeper than that? Passion. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then aptitude. Yeah. Yeah. We want people who are high performers and are here not because they couldn't get a job in, in a different setting, but they. Right. Uh, we want high performers uh, at Hope International, that aptitude. And then work ethic. It's just amazing. Uh, that hustle. Um, yeah. So around the world, those are things that cut across culture and that we look for. And we do a lot of experience-based interviewing. Um, so not asking people questions to tell them, tell us about even an experience, but to put them in scenarios that we can start to get an idea of how they would uh, be in similar uh, scenarios that relate to their to, to the job that they're applying for. So that's what yeah. we look for. Yeah. Has the pandemic hurt you both from a fund, fundraising standpoint as well as an operational standpoint? And if so, have you, have you met some of those challenges? I, I sense that there has been a lot of focus over the last year and a half for all of us. What's happening in our backyard? What's happening with our school district? Yeah. What's happening yeah. with our right. local government? What's happening? There has not been a lot of attention on the impact of this last year and a half on families in poverty. And yet mm. it has been this little known fact that the United Nations has been tracking the percent of the world that lives in extreme poverty. And every single year it's gotten, that number has gone down. The world has quietly and relentlessly been getting better when it as it relates mm. to extreme poverty That's so encouraging to hear except yeah. for last year it was the first time mm. in the the years that they've been collecting these stats 
that the number of people living in extreme poverty skyrocketed. A hundred million people are fell back into extreme poverty. Wow. First time that that wow. number went up, and and extreme poverty means living on less than a dollar ninety per day, and it means there is a question today of where are we going to get food, where are we going to get shelter, how are we going to survive, and that's mm. the reality for a lot more families now. That, uh, that have been impacted. And, and it makes sense. The entrepreneurs that Hope serves, they are the micro-entrepreneurs. They are hustling. They are working hard. Mm. They are trying to provide for their family. But then imagine you have a lockdown. You are unable to work. And unless Gosh. you have, and, and there is no payroll protection program. There is no unemployment. No. <laughs> there is no kind of support that comes and so it and 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 no vaccinations no. for the most part no I mean, in, in the developing no. world it's single digits yeah. at best and the whole thing of yeah. everyone has been impacted over the last year and a half but not everyone has been impacted equally and families yeah. in poverty they have been hit hard so it has been the hardest year for the families that we serve and yet i have never been more proud of the global team they rose to the challenge creatively pivoting and figuring out how we can come alongside entrepreneurs and massive uh, grace periods, additional capital to help restart their businesses. I've been so inspired. That's terrific. And what about on the donor front? Has that also been, you know, did the throttle come down off a little bit in the last year or so? Or have people been able to see, you know, obviously now that you've said this, and I'm glad our listeners are hearing this, the 100, more, 100 million more people in poverty. I mean, that just seems overwhelming. Um, how has it been on the donor side? So in, you know, April, May, we, we planned for worst case scenarios. We planned for what are we going to do? And and all of our scenario planning looked at revenue going down, fundraising revenue going mm. down. There wasn't yeah. even a category for us to think about last year being an increase mm. in support. And yet that is exactly what happened. The number of supporters went down. So we definitely did right. have a small, I mean, we didn't have any events um, in small person. Base. Exactly. So the yeah. number of supporters went down, but the number of those that walked with us responded with even more generosity. So we did have additional resources that we were able to turn into direct support to these entrepreneurs around the world. And, you know, we heard uh, from uh, a couple different survey instruments, but but like in the Republic of Congo, 49% of the entrepreneurs that we serve said they would be out of business right now if it were not for Hope International, that they would have gone out if it had not been for the way that we responded. Um, and so I just, yeah, so thankful for our support fantastic. base. What a blessing. Us. Oh, yeah. it is. Yeah, fantastic. And being able to retain people through it as well, particularly in the international locations. Uh, have folks stuck with you through the, through the thick and thin of this last year and a half? Yeah, we always have had a very high retention rate. Um, but yeah. last year was even higher. Yeah, it was, it was very, very high. It was an all-hands-on-deck year. And the right. team threw themselves into, into this. And again, that's part of the gift of this sort of work is if I ever complain about everything, anything, if I ever complain about I just need to spend more time around the world and remember yeah. if water comes out of my, um, <laughs> of my sink, it is a good day. Yeah. If, if I yeah, open up my fridge right. in my pantry and I <laughs> see food, it is a good day. If I lie yeah. down on a bed that has sheets, it is a good day. So I think <laughs> that's oh, just been one of the <laughs> gifts of this work is yeah. 
you do realize we have so much <laughs> and then that translates very quickly to and how can we use all of this that we've given to try and make yeah. an impact uh, in the lives of others Amen. Well, Peter, you've been very generous with your time. We always ask uh, one last question of our guests. You know, many of our many of our listeners are, you know, kind of mid 30s, mid 20s to mid 30s folks that are, you know, obviously looking at their career, thinking maybe about transitions, et cetera. And, you know, maybe some that have been in the nonprofit side looking to the, go to the profit side or vice versa. What, what kind of career and life advice would you give someone who maybe has their eyes on leading an organization like Hope? Um, but, you know, as maybe, uh, you know, 10, 15, 20 years behind you. The best advice that I got when I came to kind of questions around career uh, was something that a friend pointed me to, but it, it's called Constellation Mentoring. And it's this mm. basic idea that, you know, if, if you look for one person to be kind of the mentor, you might respect certain parts of their life and other parts you might not actually want to emulate. Right. And so, right. emulate. Yeah, so yeah. it kind of <laughs> takes this idea of, of, of mentoring and really breaks it into a constellation. So I basically, early on in my career, broke it down into the seven areas that I really wanted to learn and grow and then found a person, not just to have mm. a broad system of mentoring, but to really focus in on that one area so oh, that was that was a gift and almost all of them have turned into lifelong friends that really have walked with me in this so i wanted to know how to grow and scale a business so i found uh, someone who had grown and scaled a business um, in an incredible fashion um, and and to say i'd love to do two 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 get together with you two times a year for two hours and I'm only asking mm. for a two-year commitment on that. So really, I'm only asking you for four times to gather with you. Wow. And, uh, and, and again, that intentionality around learning with individuals in a particular area that you want to learn and grow. And just one thing, too, with a constellation. And then also looking at, and who are you pouring into as well? Are there individuals that you're investing into? Um, so that's right. really what I would right. say is, uh, yeah. It's, it's Fantastic. who are you walking with? Who are those people? Who are those voices that you're listening? And how are you surrounding yourself with people that you want to learn from, uh, grow, um, yeah, that, that, that you want to emulate um, in that particular area? That, that has resulted in lifelong friendship and the best ongoing education that I could have imagined. I love that. Constellation mentoring. You know, I've only heard that one time before, and it was actually when our youngest daughter was looking at boarding schools. And I remember we were down in the last two or three, and I remember the headmaster talked about constellation of care. Hmm. But it was in the same concept, right? You know, different teachers that would do different things at different times. And, you know, you kind of had this whole constellation out there to help your student or your child in that regard uh, with various different things. Wow, fantastic concept, Peter. Well, listen, uh, thank you so much for your time. Peter Greer, President and CEO of Hope International. God bless the work that you're doing. And thank you, much, thank you so much for sharing your journey into the corner office. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brandt, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode. 